but yeah, I think batteries are one of the things that's um, going to change a lot of things in, in ways people I think are not necessarily expecting right now. internet thanks for tuning in to this podcast if you're enjoying this channel the best thing that you can do is like subscribe comment and share that's how the channel will grow and that's how we can get even bigger and better guests on so before we get started today i've just got a few short messages first off the first round of crowdfunding for my book has now come to an end thanks to everyone who contributed However, I still have about 15 spaces left for names in the acknowledgements, so if you want to pre-order the book and get your name in there as part of telling the story of the GameStop saga, you'll find links to pre-order the book in the description below. Next up, I have two sponsors for today's show. First off, we have ExpressVPN, the internet's number one VPN. You can protect your browsing data from your internet provider and from prying eyes by going to ExpressVPN today and getting 35% off of 12 months of ExpressVPN. You can use it for privacy, safety, or just to watch Netflix shows from another part of the world. You will be absolutely stunned by the amount of extra content you can access just by setting your location to somewhere new. Secondly, I have a wonderful podcast to tell you about. But no, it's not this one. Rico and the Man is a New Jersey meets California no-holds-barred podcast about the entertainment industry, where former college buddies Rob Tregler and Peter Martino both slaughter and praise Hollywood and the film industry. The two bounce really well off of each other, sliding effortlessly between childish banter and in-depth commentary and analysis. And for listeners who love Kenny G, one of the latest episodes... Spider-Man, No Way to the Toilet, not only contains one of the funniest and most wide-ranging discussions of the highly anticipated new Spider-Man film. Why does Doctor Strange seem so off in the trailer? Will Tobey Maguire cameo in the film? And why the sheer number of other superhero films allow for filmmakers to be more creative with the ideas now. But it also includes music from saxophone legend Kenny G. Now that's not to be confused with the hedge fund manager that Twitter was calling for the arrest of. Hashtag Ken Griffin lied. Rico and the Man covers the latest entertainment news while keeping a firm foot in the Hollywood that was. With special guests, best of lists, trivia and an attempt at comedy, Rico and the Man is the perfect distraction for your pesky priorities. You'll find links for everything in the description below. Anyway, here's the podcast. Going, recording, lovely. So, hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Timothy Lee, a reporter covering tech and economics at Full Stack Economics, who was previously of the Washington Post, Vox.com, and Ars Technica. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. No problem. Do you prefer Tim or Timothy? Tim is great. Okay, no problem. So, um, what do you think is... Now, you, yeah, you've written a lot about, about tech, about transport, about artificial intelligence, and there's, there's quite a big debate about how much a government should be involved in, in sort of trying to foster innovation. Um, what is your sense um, in, in terms of how, how that can, yeah, be, 
how, how a government or maybe not even should try to create the best platform or system in which innovation can take place. So that's a big topic. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that the government can try to um, promote innovation. And um, I I wouldn't say I'm an expert in all of them. Um, But I I think definitely one way that's very useful is through subsidies. You know, a lot of innovations have um, significant public benefits beyond what the um, entrepreneur can capture. And so um, government subsidies can be helpful. And so that sometimes that can be classic, you know, funding for scientific research. Um, But another big category that I think we've seen recently is um, subsidies for particular types of products. So um, in the like green technology area, I think that the tax credit for electric vehicles, um, the tax credits for solar panels, um, the regulatory mandates in some states for um, grid storage has done a lot to push, um, you know, growth in the use of electric and battery technologies, for example. Um, And one of the the reason that's important is that um, these are technologies where economies of scale matter a lot. And so you actually can push down the cost of batteries and solar to the point where you don't need subsidies anymore. You can get them. They're pretty close now where electric cars are not that much more expensive than gas cars. Solar panels are not that much more expensive than um, other types of power generation. Um, and so the government can kind of get that that flywheel going where they pay for the first few units to, or a few thousand million units. And then after that, the kind of market forces can continue the market the uh, momentum on their own so one thing I, I would love to see more thought about is like what are the other technologies out there um, that would be very useful if they became cheap enough and can the government kind of give it give some of them a push to uh, make them more economical do you have some examples of ones that you'd like to see more investment in uh yeah i'm not sure i this, this no not really this is this is uh definitely something um i'd like to do um, more research. I mean, there's, there's some like super like widely discussed ones like fusion technology, which I'm not an expert on. I've, you know, it, it seems like people are becoming more optimistic about it. Um, carbon capture technologies, um, you know, theoretically you should be able to pull carbon out of the air and make gasoline with them. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other ones that, uh, uh, you know, I'm just not, not enough of an expert to, um, know what they all are. So uh, why don't we go back a little bit? Um, where did you sort of start your career covering, tech and economics, and then what sort of led you to starting full stack economics? Sure. Um, so, so my background is in computer science. Um, I studied computer science as an undergrad, um, and a few years later, I went to grad school for computer science. Um, but I've also always been interested in um, public policy. And um, after my undergraduate degree, um, I got a job at the Cato Institute, which was a, a you know a think tank that um, uh, studies a wide range of policy issues. And so I was kind of looking for a way to combine those interests of, you know, technology and, um, public policy. And so, um, I got into blogging, um, and after a couple of years of blogging for free, um, I got a, a regular freelance gig with Ars Technica, um, which is a, you know, tech news site here in the U S. Um, and, uh, and that turned into a, a career in, in public policy. Um, so yeah, that's how I got into it. Um, the reason that I um, launched Full Stack Economics um, last month was that mostly I just saw a big opportunity in it. Um, there's been a number of um, prominent writers, including a few I know from um, past jobs who have done it and done pretty well financially. Um, but I'm also very interested in the um, just the uh, the independence and the particularly the opportunity to really go 
in depth. Um, when you're at a site like Ars Technica, um, you know, they tried to make room for their writers to do in-depth reporting. And I think we did more than most publications, but, um, you know, they really want content on the site every day. And so you spend a lot of time just kind of um, reporting the same stuff everybody else is reporting. Um, and only maybe half or a third of my time was spent like really trying to write stuff that you couldn't find anywhere else. And my hope is that uh, by having a more direct relationship with reader and hopefully getting some of those readers to um, pay directly, that I can then spend 100% of my time uh, doing enough research and writing pieces that you know, has information that they're not going to find anywhere else. Mm. Yeah, we've definitely seen that that move in the last six, eight months where a lot of sort of more prominent previously independent-ish reporters have, have moved over to things like Substack. Do you think that's the future for, for journalists? Do you think that, that like the publication as such is, is on the way out and that people will just follow like individuals? So I, th I think you're seeing um, move simultaneously in, in two directions. So the, the very biggest, uh, most prestigious news organizations, you know, particularly the New York Times, um, is also subscribing in a subscription world. Um, I think they have like six or seven million subscribers, you know, and they're generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And so they have been able to scoop up many of the most talented um, writers. So, so a few years ago, I worked at, at Vox.com, which was a kind of a new startup. Um, several of my most talented former colleagues are now at the New York Times, um, and a couple others have started Substacks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's putting a lot of pressure on kind of publications in the middle, the kind of small and medium-sized publications that um, are not subscription-based and um, are like kind of too big for um, readers to have a really strong personal connection to any particular writer, but too small to be like, the thing with the Times is you get lots and lots of content that's really, really good because they have so many people, you know, putting so much effort into each piece. Um, I think in the middle, uh, you know, it's going to be challenging. And, and I, I think that's a shame because I, you know, I think those publications add a lot of value because they, they're more independent, but I think there is value in, um, you know, having a, uh, group of reporters working together. So, so one of the things I'm very happy about with Full Stack Economics is I convinced my um, partner, um, Alan Cole, to quit his job. He was a Capitol Hill staffer. Um, he quit and he's, he's doing it full time with me. And so uh, we have a little two person news organization. Um, in the long run, I would love to grow that to be three, four, five people, maybe more, um, because I do think there's a lot of value. Um, I, th I think just being a, a solo um, newsletter writer in my you know, in my office at home, it would get a little lonely in the long run and would, and would not allow me to do my best work. Cause I think I do learn from, from having other people who are doing similar kind of work. Mm. No, I promise we'll get onto tech stuff in a minute, but I am curious sure. as to what it was like working at Vox because it's somewhere that I previously had really admired, especially um, some of the founding members. I thought their, their journalism was incredible. Uh, Matthew Iglesias and Ezra Klein, um, oh more specifically uh, and the podcasts were fantastic but i feel like the i don't know i feel like they've lost a bit of their edge or something's gone on there um and i was curious as to what it was like when you were working there at least uh so i really enjoyed my time at vox especially as you said the first year or two um when that original founding team was all there um it was a really uh high energy place a lot of creativity we got to try a lot of um you know different techniques. I mean, the online journalism was a relatively new concept at that point. And so, um, you know, I feel like I learned a lot. Um, I think it partly is just the, those, those like economic forces I was talking about. I mean, a lot of it is, is like the time scooped up half a dozen of our best writers mm. um, and a few, you know, one went to the Washington Post. And um, so I think partly it was that it was just hard to hold that original team together. Um, 
So uh, there's some, um, you know, there's still some great writers there. Jerusalem Demsis is a relatively new writer who um, covers housing policy that I think is doing really fantastic work. So they they still have good writers, but I think it's just um, the economics are are difficult. And, um, you know, it's it's just been hard for them to to keep the the best writers they get. Mm. Yeah. So um, one of the biggest stories uh, of, of AI over the past... I think over the past five years has been the the Tesla bot that has been unveiled. Um, what was it last week? Something like that. Mm-hmm. And I am just stunned at the lack of coverage. I feel like people should be screaming either one way or the other. Like they could be screaming about how this is the future or how this is the thing that's going to destroy us all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could like, lay out for me and for the the people uh listening uh sort of what is the tesla bot and maybe what you see it being used for sure um so i i guess i should say i'm kind of skeptical of the tesla bot um that's I mean, perfect the, the thing is um <laughs> elon musk has a history of making very grandiose claims about what he's going to accomplish <laughs> um and for, sometimes he does accomplish them but usually it takes much longer than um, he said even like his most, his biggest accomplishments, like the rockets, um, you know, he was several years beyond what he said. Um, so I think it's always good to take, you know, initial product announcements from Elon Musk with a, a big grain of salt. I mean, he's been saying self-driving cars are about two years away since 2015. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I definitely don't think, I think he said it was going to come out next year or something like that. Like that, I do not think there's any chance of that happening. Um, and then if you look at the kind of specifically what you would have to accomplish to do to create the product he's talking about, I mean, he's talking about an anthropomorphic robot with, you know, hands and feet that can, um, you know, go get your groceries or do kind of entry level work at a factory or something like that. Um, I mean, there are com- com- uh, companies like Boston Dynamics that have been working on anth- anthropomorphic robots for like 20 years. Um, and you might have seen them make these like funny videos with them like dancing and stuff. And it's pretty impressive. Like they can like do gymnastics and stuff. Um, but they are, um, I think, very heavy, um, kind of clumsy, um, and uh, I think probably way too expensive to be. Um, yeah, they have not launched a humanoid robot. They have like kind of a, a little like dog robot that has some of the same characteristics, but I think it's not close to being like human level intelligence. Um, and so even if you assume that Tesla has the um, AI, AI capabilities to do the kind of mental part, which I don't think they do, there's also a ton of like robotics to make the like, light, flexible, powerful, um, you know, non-lethal, uh, <laughs> you know, hands, feet, et cetera, that you'd have to figure out. Um, and that seems, I mean, he, he sort of said, well, we kind of already have all the pieces from uh, from making cars. And so we can just apply that to, to robotics. But I don't think there's any hands or, or feet or, um, you know, that, that kind of thing in a, in a car. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's, I, it didn't seem, it didn't seem to me like, Elon Musk was even that serious. I mean, the fact that they they had a, a guy dressed up as a Tesla bot come on a dance um, makes me think it was just like, you know, like there was a lot of like very like in-depth, like technical content to the rest of the presentation. And I think maybe they were just like, well, we need, you know, we need to get people talking about this presentation. So let's like throw in this Tesla bot thing. It's just kind of a, <laughs> a thing for the media to talk about. Um, so I don't know, this, this maybe is not the direction you wanted this, this question to go, but um, I, I think it's, um, I'll be very surprised if in the next, say, five years, um, there is a, a product like the Tesla bot. Okay. Tesla. That's interesting. I mean, I would have said the same before the announcement. Now I'm not sure, but 
yeah, as, as you said, Elon Musk has a, a habit of uh, making grandiose claims about when things are going to be ready. Yeah. Um, he, to be fair, he, sometimes he does, like often he does eventually deliver. So I wouldn't be surprised if in you know, 2035, you know, the Tesla bot comes out or something like that. Mm. Um, so I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think this is more, um, a little more outlandish than some of his other stuff because it's not core, you know, like Tesla is an energy and, and car company, you know, SpaceX is a rocket company. It's not, I, I just think this will be a, a really big undertaking that not, I haven't seen any sign that they're really serious about it. Mm. How close do you think we actually are to self-driving cars? So you said that, yeah, Elon has been talking about it for being two years away since 2015. Mm-hmm. How, cl- how close do you think we are? And not, not, I don't mean like specifically with Tesla. I just mean generally as to yeah. someone cracking it to the point where governments will allow that to go on the road, like just go for it legally. Right. Well, so the, the, the thing that's, that's tricky about this question is that there's a lot of different types of self-driving cars. So, um, you know, Waymo, Google's company already has self-driving taxis in a portion of the Phoenix area that are completely driverless, work fine. Um, it's like an Uber type service. So in some sense, like the technology already exists, it's out there. Um, now Waymo has had that for about a year now and has not expanded it at all, which if they have this like world changing technology, you would expect them to be like expanding rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they haven't given a good answer for why not. It's not clear if it's like too expensive or, um, you know, the, the economics aren't working out. Um, or, uh, maybe there's, you know, that. They've seen some close calls and are like nervous. I'm not sure. I, I have no idea why, why they're not expanding. So clearly it's not ready for like a mass market or we won't be expanding faster. Um, but I think what you'll see is you'll see um, probably mostly taxi and delivery services to start with because um, the economics of a service, if you run a service, you're able to swap out sensors, upgrade software and so forth much easier than if you sell a product to a customer. Um, and so I think you'll see um, more and more delivery services coming out. There's a few companies also that are doing like kind of small delivery robots. I think you'll see taxi services that over time have larger service areas and can go at higher speeds. Um, in terms of when um, you'll have a pretty general taxi service where say in most metro areas, you can go pretty much anywhere in the metro area. My guess would be that's probably five or 10 years away. Um, but with like large area bars, I, I would not be shocked if it was two or three years away or if it was, you know, not until the 2030s. Do you think people will trust a computer to drive them? That, because, I don't know, I, I've seen at least some people saying that the self-driving things that already exist are far less accident-prone than humans. Now, like, I could have just read something that was incorrect. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we're at a point where they are not... Yeah, they're, they're not going to cause, if they were just put in today like broadly across like a wide portion of the population that there would be potentially less accidents than there would be with just humans on the roads. Mm-hmm. Um, but anytime I see one of those crap, those, those like articles about, Oh, the, the Tesla self-driving thing caused X crash or, or, you know, self-driving car causes this. It seems mm-hmm. like people are incredibly skeptical of allowing computers to drive cars do you think that's like a real skepticism and do you think we'll like easily just jump to trusting them to drive us around at 70 miles an hour mm-hmm. i think it'll be faster than people expect the the trust because um 
I think if you ask people in the abstract, like, do you think self-driving cars are a good idea? A lot of people will have a kind of instinctive, like, oh, I don't know, that sounds possibly dangerous. Mm. Um, but the thing about when you get into an actual self-driving car like Waymo has, that's fully driverless, there's nobody behind the wheel, is it's, like, so boring. It's it really just, like, <laughs> it drives like your grandma, right? And so you sit in the back seat, and it just, it stops at all the stoplight, it goes to the speed limit, it, you know, it's like a courteous driver that, like, lets people in. Um, and so I think that, uh, people might be nervous the first one or two or five or 10 times they do it. But if it starts to become commonplace, it'll just be like, okay, it works. And I think actually that it's more likely you'll have the opposite where they do 10 safe rides and then they're like completely trusting. Um, and especially, I mean, this is why um, I think some experts are, are skeptical of the like kind of partial automation where you have a car that you own and you can like turn on self-driving mode, but you're still supposed to like watch it and have your hands on the steering wheel. Because with that, if you go for a hundred miles and it doesn't crash, you're like, great, it's a self-driving car, I can stop paying attention. Mm. When actually, I mean, because the thing people don't, I think, think about enough is that humans are actually quite safe as drivers. Um, mm. The fatality rate on our highways is, is um, about one death per 100 million miles. So that's like, and it, you know, oh. it makes sense, because obviously, um, you know, if you were dying every 100,000 miles, like people wouldn't want to drive cars, but like many, many lifetimes between fatal crashes. Um, and so I don't think we actually yet have the data to say for sure, like are the like leading self-driving cars safer than human cars? Because um, like Waymo, the, probably the leading company, um, they have not had a fatal crash. That's great. But they've gone about 20 million miles, which is, you know, one fifth of the distance you go between the average, you know, fatal crash for a human. Um, and so I think it's quite possible, maybe likely that they'll get to 100 million miles without killing anybody. But we just don't know because it'll take, um, you know, probably another year or two for them to get there. Um, and Tesla, we, do, we have a larger data set because Tesla, you know, has pushed its technology out to a lot of car, a lot of um cars, they've had uh, a handful of fatal crashes um, where there's some debate about, like, was that the, the software's fault or the human's fault for not paying attention? Mm. Uh, but I think it's in, roughly in the same ballpark as humans. It's not clearly less safe or clearly more safe um, as a human driver. So mm. I think eventually we'll get to the point where it's, like, clearly more safe and you'll have debates about, you know, should we let people drive and, and whatever. But I think that's probably, you know, 10, 20 years away. Mm. At that point, do you think they'll let people drive? I think in the long run, it's, there's probably going to be restrictions on it. I mean, one thing that could happen is you could imagine um, having, I mean, I think like driving will become a hobby, like riding a horse, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, or like driving a sports car or something like, you know, you can ride a horse if you want, um, but it's kind of inconvenient. You, you only can do it in certain areas and, you know, people, most people don't do it very often. Um, and one thing you could imagine is um, car manufacturers could make kind of an uncrashable car where you mostly get to drive it yourself. But if you try to do something dangerous, it'll like take control and like, you know, jerky back on the, into the lane or whatever, um, or, you know, you know, we're already starting to see that. I mean, a lot of cars nowadays have emergency braking systems where if, they're about, if you're about to crash into a brake wall, it'll hit the brakes and at least mitigate the crash. Um, and so that that's another possible direction is that those kinds of systems will, will roll out a long time alongside fully self-driving cars so that like humans also have a very close to zero crash rate and it's kind of not a big deal. And it's just like, you can drive your car if you want, but like, why would you bother when you could read a book or watch a movie? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to see what, what people do with that time. Totally. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. Really interesting. I mean, likelihood is it's not going to be some massive explosion in people reading books as they drive. It'll just be people scrolling Twitter. Probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I mean, th I think there's there's potential for big changes in lifestyle. I mean, for example, um, you know, if, if you can scroll Twitter or watch a movie or do work in your car, 
Um, maybe you become willing to move much further out. Maybe this excerpt will get out, you know, two hours commute from the city, city center instead of one hour. Um, you know, so like, I, I think there's a lot of potential changes in uh, the way our cities are laid out, for example, as um, people. Um, and on the, on the other side, uh, taxis are likely to get cheaper because you don't have to pay for a driver. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe you'll also see more people living in kind of higher density areas where, you know, you can take a taxi everywhere because it's just as convenient as owning your own car. So it's hard to, to predict kind of which of those effects will be more significant or maybe we'll have both like denser cities and sprawler suburbs. But um, I think it'll have significant impacts on kind of how cities are laid out. Mm. Do you think anyone will own their car in, or do you think we're going to end up with like roaming fleets of autonomous vehicles? Because I don't know I've seen this, this proposal talked about by a lot of people um, that either it would be like roaming Ubers or whatever, mm -hmm. um, going around and just sort of picking people up, taking them off and like, uh, or people having like a, a car share program or yeah. like paying for like part of it to be able to use use it to take them places or yeah i've also seen like suggestions that this will there'll be like jumps from public transport so you'll have like say your bus and then maybe the bus will either like stop somewhere and then there'll be like a smaller thing to take you like the last leg of your journey and that it's just yep. going to be like all automated public transport for every street of the city mm -hmm. or that it's going to be sort of quite a lot privately owned um like everyone will have their Tesla or whatever. Right. Which right. way do you see things going? So I, I think as with today, obviously people have a lot of ways to get around today and I don't think that's going to change, but I, I do think you'll see more um, use of taxis because I think if you're rich enough that you can afford to take a taxi a lot and you're in a fairly high density area, like the taxi is the most convenient way to get around because you don't have to worry about, worry about parking. So I think in cities you'll see um, as much or more use of taxis. Um, something I think is likely to happen um, is that I think that leasing cars will become much more popular um, because the, the issue you have um, with owning a self-driving car is that you you need to have an ongoing relationship with a company that makes the self-driving software because they're liable if the, if the car crashes. So like if a sensor breaks, they're gonna wanna replace it immediately because they don't wanna you know, have it malfunction. Um, they need to do software updates, they need to provide you know data, map data, et cetera. Um, and so I think likely what will happen is people that want to quote unquote own a car will shift from outright owning it to having a kind of long-term rental arrangement, like a you know, three-year lease where it's your car, it can sit in your driveway whenever you want. Um, but you know, if it breaks down or it needs an oil change, it just drives itself off to get the oil change. It comes back and you don't have to pay for that. Um, and after three years, like an identical car drives up or a newer version of the same car drives up and the old one drives away and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and uh, so I think there'll be some of that. And then I think there will be some, um, some people that just get rid of the car altogether. I mean, one of the nice things about um, having uh, the ability to very easily rent, I mean, if, if a car can drive itself to you, then it's very easy to rent a car. Um, and so I think the kinds of cars people own might change. So you have a lot of people that mostly use the car to drive to work, but they buy a five seat vehicle because, you know, once a month they want to drive out to the countryside to, you know, whatever. Um, and that's kind of inefficient. So you can imagine instead having, um, you know, leasing a uh, two seat or one seat vehicle for your daily commute. Um, and then on the weekends, you just rent a, a minivan, you know, for the one day that you need um, to go out on the countryside or so, and so forth. Um, and so I think you'll probably have the average vehicle uh, size might get smaller um, and you might have new types of vehicles. You could imagine um, like a sleeper car where, you know, you say you're going to your cabin and, you know, you know, six hours away, you like get in the car and go to sleep and wake up 
you know, the next morning, um, there, there could be like new like types of cars that uh, are only viable if nobody has to drive. Mm. So if we're assuming that some point in the next 10, 20 ish years, we're going to see like a, a pretty big movement towards um, self-driving cars and, and self-driving tech. Mm -hmm. What do you think that does to all the people who are working in transport? Um, because now I've seen different estimates of to the size of people engaged in that industry who are part of the economy, but uh, it's mm -hmm. around, from what I can tell, nine to ten percent of of the jobs are in transport. Yes, and it seems like a very big majority of those are probably under threat at some point in the near future. What does that do to the economy? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it. Um... So, so one of the things I think is important to say about this is I do think it will be gradual. As I said, I think it'll be 10 or 20 years before, um, you know, say your, your average city, you'll have a taxi service and go wherever you want. So um, I think that helps a lot because what, the thing you really don't want to have is like the factory in town closes and like everybody in the town factory is just out of a job at the same time. Mm. Um, if you have, if it's a 30 year process um, from, you know, today to like nobody has a job driving, that's long enough that the older workers can kind of, finish out their careers, hopefully. The younger workers can be, oh, maybe I shouldn't go into this, I should do something else. Um, and so I think that is much less disruptive. Um, but the other thing is I think it's often, um, it, it's often counterintuitive the kind of effects that automation can have on the labor market. I actually just had a piece this uh, week looking at another kind of automation technology, which is Amazon's um, no checkout uh, technology where uh, they have cameras in the ceiling that watch what you take and then oh. they send you a bill afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and in the piece, I was I was kind of trying to figure out what the labor <laughs> are. Um, and an interesting example here is um, when ATMs were invented in the 80s and 90s, you might have expected that um, that would lead to a lot of tellers being laid off. Um, and that's actually not what happened. And a big reason for that is because it was cheaper to own, run a bank branch, um, customers started to expect to have a bank branch closer to them. And so banks actually opened more uh, branches um, and so that somewhat offset the, the job losses from you have fewer tellers per branch, but more branches. Um, and I could see um, similar kinds of things happening with trucking in particular, um, because if you think about what a truck driver does, there's some long haul truckers that are just moving, you know, a, a, a trailer full of stuff from point A to point B. But there's a lot of other trucking jobs that are like you're driving around to convenience stores and bringing, you know, putting like 12 packs on the shelves or something. And the self-driving car is not going to do that. Um, and so in the short run, I think you'll see, um, you know, maybe the long haul stuff gets automated, but the, because it's cheaper to ship stuff, you actually have more work, uh, you know, driving the stuff around short, you know, the short distances. Um, and, um, you know, and as we get wealthier, we're just, you know, as automation makes us wealthier, then people will be buying more stuff. And so um, the total number of, um, you know, jobs might go up. Um, I mean, you, you also see this with like Amazon's warehouses, like they use a lot of robots, but they also hire a ton of people mm -hmm. because as more, as, as delivery becomes cheaper and more convenient, people use it more and more. And so, um, the, the robots make it efficient, but then they're still, they, they got like hundreds of thousands of people. So in the very long run, I think we will see a decline in the number of people who are paid to drive. But, um, in the, in the short term, I think that it'll just take a while for the technology to, um, mature to the point where people's jobs are under a lot of threat. And in the medium term, I think you'll see a lot of um, kind of kind of complementary jobs where maybe the truck drives to your location and you unload the truck or, you know, something like that. What, one other example I'll, I'll um, mention, some, some companies are experimenting with a um, kind of short haul, long haul 
model where instead of one guy driving, you know, from Los Angeles to uh, Houston, you'll have a, um, like a switching station outside LA and the human will drive the truck in the like complicated urban trip, uh, area to the switching station next to the freeway. Then the robot drives to the other city. And then there's another guy that picks the truck up and drives it the last 10 or 20 miles. Um, and this actually has some nice like properties for the truck driver because now you can live in one city. You can go home and sleep in your own house every every night. Um, you don't have like the worst part of trucking is like being away from your family for for days or weeks at a time. Mm. Um, but there might still be a lot of you know, especially if that makes it cheaper and there's like more interstate shipping. Um, there still might be a lot of jobs like doing those kind of short routes that because it's harder for computers to do cities, especially with trucks. Like that's really hard. You probably take a lot of time to figure that out. It's pretty easy to automate freeways. And so you, you might have those kind of things where some parts of the job get automated, but there's lots of demand for the, the parts that can't be automated. Mm. That's until we get the Tesla bot to, to do all the complicated <laughs> stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But yeah. Um, if the Tesla bot comes, then all bots might be off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, like one of the one of the big concerns that people have um, that I've heard at least when they're talking about um, anything from like AI to self driving um, technology cars programs whatever however you want to describe it is that it's going to provide like an incredible economic benefit for the few people who are in control of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your sense, both as like an economics and a tech writer? Mm-hmm. as to how we can ensure that this is for the benefit of everyone so that mm-hmm. we get like you're describing like a scenario in which we have all this technology and it's making things cheaper and more available and people have more money and right. uh, we get somewhere towards what i have heard people describe as fully automated luxury communism sure how do we stop that being corrupted in a way by uh people who will create this tech and then just use it to further their own wealth and sort of make yeah make it not as utilitarian as is that the right word make it not as like widely available or not as uh good for humanity as as sort of more broadly right yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I see this as not like super specific to the tech. I mean, obviously it's true that when you invent a new technology, the people that invented or own that technology are going to get rich and that pushes up inequality. Um, and so uh, I, I think just the kind of like old fashioned progressive taxation, um, you know, government benefits, um, like the uh, in a world with a lot of automation and a lot of very rich people, you probably want some more in- income redistribution. I, I don't have like a dog in the fight of like how much there should be, but if that's your, I think if that's your concern, it's better to focus on that kind of thing as opposed to kind of limiting the spread of the technology or try to like re-architect the technology to, um, b- because it's not, I don't think it's particular to any specific technology. Like like every technology has done this and um, not every, but lots of technologies have done this. And um, uh, if you try to, to kind of tinker with individuals, individual technologies are likely to have um, to make them less useful or otherwise like screw things up. Um, what, one other thing I've written about is I, I do think uh, the concept of full employment is really important. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, and the Federal Reserve is an important institution here. Like if, if you have a situation where a lot of, a lot of automation is throwing people out of work, 
Um, what you want is you want to put more money in people's pockets so they can spend and then create jobs in other parts of the economy, perhaps. Um, and that's basically fundamentally what the Fed does. It, it you know, decides how much money is circulating. And so I think if you're worried about kind of a dystopian jobless future, you should be thinking about that kind of macroeconomic policy. Um, and, you know, and also like stimulus, stimulus um, uh, spending like Congress did last year. Um, that kind of thing is a way to um, not only people put people to work, but one of the really nice things about a really like tight labor market is that workers have a lot of leverage um, because if everybody can like quit and go down the street and get a job somewhere else the next day. Um, then not only are you hopefully going to get raises, but you also employers have a have an incentive to be nicer to you. They have an incentive to be maybe more open minded about uh, you know hiring somebody with criminal record, or you know if they're racist, they might still have to take somebody they're not that excited about because you know they need the work. Like it, it just gives workers more power, mm-hmm. um, and so that's uh, I guess that's one of my my personal hobby horses. I think it's really important to to have a a, a full employment economy with a tight labor market. Mm. How do we? How do you get a full employment economy that isn't because the only example that I can think of right now um is say uh Soviet Russia or communist China and like obviously these are extreme examples sure. but like how do you how do you get that in a capitalist economy essentially sure. is my so, question So yeah so to be clear what by full employment I don't mean like necessarily a like official government job guarantee I mean, the kind of employee economy we had in like 1999, when it was just unemployment was like below 4%. Um, you know, lots of, you know, wages were rising, profits were up. Um, and uh, I think that the last decade, um, the Fed and Congress have made from, from like um, 2009 to 2019, I think that recovery could have been much faster if macroeconomic policymakers had done different things. If they, um, for example, um, the Fed started rate raising interest rates in 2015, which uh, slowed the economy. Um, I think it would have been better if they hadn't done that. And then we would have gotten, I mean, 2019 was a, was a pretty good economy as well. I think we could have had gotten there, you know, several years faster if we had had, um, you know, more stimulus spending and, and uh, looser money. So that's, that's what I'm talking about is um, not, not, you know, I, I think there's some argument for like universal basic income and not like opposed to that. Um, but a much more like straightforward thing is just, um, just make sure you're getting, you're pushing unemployment rate down quickly by um, making sure that consumers have lots of money to spend. Do you buy the right to work argument? I mean, because I've seen that sort of debated quite hotly um, mm-hmm. in in sort of more left-wing circles, at least over the, well, I mean, the right-wingers are outraged about the idea. But mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like, do you buy that as a concept of as something that's like, actually feasible no i wouldn't i would not say that i'm a a fan of the idea of the government like guaranteeing people a job um i mean i I think in a wealthy society you should be able to make sure people you know have food to eat and and you know but but i think the way to do that is programs like food stamps that make sure people have um money but um I, i think it's really hard to for the government to design a program that gives people like useful work and if it's not useful work then it's like kind of what's the point because the, you know, the point of theoretically, the point of giving somebody a job as opposed to just a check is so they like feel proud of like they're like contributing to society. Mm-hmm. But like they're going to know if like if, if you're like creating make work jobs that aren't actually useful, like that's not going to work because people aren't stupid. They're going to know that actually my job is not useful. Um, so that, I think there might be cases where there actually are, um, you know, useful work that could be done that the government could hire more people as a job program. I like opposed to that. But um if you if you say like everybody's guaranteed a job, like 
there's just going to be times when there's not, the government doesn't have enough things for people to do, or there's going to be certain workers that don't have any relevant skills that, um, you know, government can put to work. And I would rather just give those people money as opposed to like make a fake job for them. Mm. Yeah, no, I can, I can get that. So what, what piece of tech do you think is going to make the biggest impact in, in our lives, either sort of on society or just sort of, economically over the next sort of 10 to 15 years do is there something that you like look at as being the the industry where things are going to really explode sure i mean i am i think self-driving is definitely high on that list um Mm -hmm. as i said i think it might be a little more than 10 years when when you have the the big impact it might be more than 2030s um but i think that'll be a big deal um this is not my area but um i have the impression that that biotech is going to be a big thing um, I mean, obviously the, the rapid speed which with, with which we got the COVID vaccine was a big deal. And mm. um, I've seen some people suggest that those same techniques will allow us to develop, quickly develop vaccines for other diseases that have been hard to, um, to deal with. So um, that seems really promising to me. Um, and then I think that, uh, <laughs> I think uh, like clean tech, I think is really has a lot of momentum behind it now. Um, the, the falling cost of batteries means that we're very close to the point where electric cars are just as cheap as, as gasoline cars, mm-hmm. um, you know, without any subsidies. And I think as that, um, as that becomes true, um, a lot of stuff will start changing because right now gasoline cars benefit from the um, kind of network effects of, you know, there's so many gasoline car owners that you can, for example, just assume there'll be a gas station in any city you go to. You don't have to like check ahead of time. Will I be able to, refill my car. But, you know, as uh, electric cars start to become more popular, that'll become true of electric cars. And gas cars are actually kind of a pain in the ass. Like you have to change the oil. Um, you can't, you have to go to the gas station with, you know, we have an electric car and um, aside from long, uh, from long trips, you can just charge at home. Um, and so I think that, it, you know, and, and I think they, they tend to break down less because they're much simpler. So I think we're likely to see um, probably in about that time, 10 year time frame, you'll see a, a rapid increase in the number of people that have electric cars, um, which I, know, I don't think will have like transformational effects on society, but I think it'll be a big, you know, there'll be a lot of jobs uh, installing charging stations and mm-hmm. fixing electric cars and so forth. Um, and, uh, and obviously that'll have some, some big environmental benefits. Um, and then I think that that will then uh, allow, as the scale of electric cars get, get bigger, uh, batteries will continue to get cheaper and more powerful because there'll be more energy and more economies of scale. Um, mm-hmm. And that'll make it easier to electrify the electric grid. Um, you might have more, uh, this is a little farther out, but I think um, electric airplanes are going to become viable for short trips. Um, there's a category of, of vertical takeoff and landing ones that are kind of like helicopters that, you know, some people call like flying cars. I think are a ways away from that, but like um, mm-hmm. cheap, cheap and high power batteries are an important factor in that. Um, so I think that, that, yeah, I think batteries are one of the things that's, um, going to change a lot of things in, in ways people, I think, are not necessarily expecting right now. Mm. I think it was Elon Musk that said, if you want a flying car, put wheels on a helicopter. Uh, <laughs> <which> <laughs> that, I, I think that's absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I would trust everyday people to to fly that around. But... No, I mean, this is, this is part of, um, I, I think what's going to happen is they'll be automated, mm-hmm. right? So it'll be, um, because, because one of the things, so a traditional helicopter has only one or two rotors, because that's all a human can control, but it's actually much safer to have like a quadcopter or a 12 copter or whatever with a lot of little propellers because you have more redundancy. And I think they also have better aerodynamic properties. 
And so once you have um, software that can like navigate the, the thing, it like opens up a much larger design space for like where the propellers are and how many there are. Um, and so then I think you could have um, kind of air taxi services um, where, you know, if you need to get to the airport, it like lands in a parking lot near your house and you get in and it takes you to the airport and drops you off at the airport, that kind of thing. Yeah. Whenever I think about this, I just have visions of the first people who want this to like try and strap themselves to a drone that they've like <laughs> souped up, <laughs> uh, yeah. which would be funny. But um, so you mentioned like electric cars there and, and that they are becoming yeah, far more adopted and that we've got like a, a much bigger chance of having um, yeah, charging points in more and more and more and more and more places. Mm-hmm. What do you do you see electric cars as just being the thing now? Because um, at least a few years ago, there was sort of talk and debate about whether it was going to be some sort of biofuel or whether there was going to be like hydrogen, uh, liquid hydrogen used. Mm. Do you see, do you think like electric cars have kind of won that battle out now and that, that that's where we're going to yeah. go with it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, just in terms of like, you know, market share is just so much bigger than any of the other, other things. Um, and, uh, and I mean, the, the thing about electric cars is that um, you can charge them at home. So um, there's just a, there's, you still need some infrastructure to let people do fast charging on long trips, but um, it would be really to, to do hydrogen cars, you would have to get like hydrogen gas stations everywhere, mm-hmm. which I think is an even larger, you know, lift because you need, well, and also it's like, it's relatively easy to like hook a, a high voltage plug into a parking spot somewhere. Whereas like having hydrogen storage tanks and, you know, um, trucks to cart the hydrogen, that, that's tricky. So I, I'm not that bullish on hydrogen. The one thing though, I think the hydrogen could, um, help with is that we don't yet have a good technology for long haul electric um, battery operated vehicles just because batteries can't charge very quickly. Um, and so I think for long haul trucking, um, so, so that, you know, there's a, a company called Nikola that has a lot of problems. I'm not sure that they specifically, I'm, I'm not bullish on them specifically because um, there was some, uh, some flim flammery that went on earlier in, early in their, their life. But the, the idea that um, there might be hydrogen powered um, like semi trucks does not seem crazy to me. Um, but I think for most other uses, anything that's not super long distance, I think that, uh, that, that battery powered electric cars are going to be the way to go. Mm, I'm just having a look at their website now. It all looks very impressive. I'll have to check these guys out when I get, yeah, they're just so, so they were, um, I they mean, were started website. by a, a very charismatic guy who, um, I think said a lot of things that weren't true about his technology, promised a lot of things that weren't real. Um, and I think the most like egregious thing is a couple of years after they announced, you know, they had a big unveiling and showed off kind of Tesla style. Like here's our amazing new truck. They put out a video showing it supposedly driving down the highway. And it came out later that what they'd done is they found a very long, very gradual hill and they towed the truck to the top of the hill and started rolling <laughs> down the hill. And they tilted the camera a little bit so that it looked like it was driving on level ground. <laughs> Um, and that That's initial incredible. prototype, they, as far as, as far as anybody can tell, they never actually got it working over like three or four years. Um, they eventually raised enough money that they were able to partner with other companies that do know how to make trucks to like make their trucks for them. And now they like seem to have some, some prototypes driving around. So I don't know, they might make it work, but, um, I, I would take what they said. The, the, the guy who was running the company then quit shortly after that was revealed and they have to have, seem to have some like more credible people running the company now, but I, I would uh, do that with a little bit of caution. 
Okay. They've 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 got three trucks advertised on the website. One is due out this year, and the others are 2023 and 2024. But I guess we'll see if they they do anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like it's it's begging for a, a Tesla collaboration so they can call it Nikola Tesla. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the the suspicion is that there was like a cynical effort to like make people confused, get people confused with with Nikola, mm. um, and they they have a lawsuit between the two of them accusing each other of ripping off their designs. So, so I don't think you're. <laughs> You're likely to see uh, see any like friendly collaboration between those companies. Mm, maybe not. So, um, for the last question, I I would like to get like just a little bit sort of esoteric and and philosophical. If you're kind of fine with that, sure. uh, <laughs> is that so? There's a fantastic quote from Eric Weinstein uh, that we are now gods, but for the wisdom, and it's a uh, yeah. It's a it's a sentiment that's kind of echoed in Homo Deus, which is the follow up to Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you've read it. I've, but, I've read Sapiens. I didn't have. Uh, Homo Deus. It sort of treads quite a lot of the the same pathways, but then sort of pushes it forward into saying, "Okay, here is the different ways we can go with our tech." Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing that I've, I'm curious as to your thoughts on are where or do you think that humanity as a whole or maybe even just one nation are capable of like planning and thinking about the direction in which technology takes us or do you think we're just kind of along for the ride of where things go uh probably more the second one um i mean i, mean, I think that uh I think you see this most clearly with, with climate change, where a series of um, technological decisions that nobody really, you know, made to use internal combustion engines and so forth um, created this problem that's been pretty obvious for 30, 40 years. And uh, now we're trying to fix it. And it's really hard because um, because you need a lot of different countries to cooperate. Um, and so I think that same issue with coordination is going to um, limit any effort to, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you you have a slightly more successful example of nuclear nonproliferation where uh, we have kept most countries from having nuclear weapons. So that's good. Um, But that's like really, I I think a lot of resources will put into that. And that's Mm -hmm. um, anything that, and and that's something where like nobody has, there's no like consumer nuclear weapons. So it's a little easier to like (laughs) limit how they're used. Um, but any kind of consumer technology, you've got, you know, 200 countries on the planet and millions of consumers, um, you're just, it's just going to be really, really hard to get any kind of consensus on, um, you know, how it should be regulated or what kind of limits. And so basically anything that, that can be done probably is going to be done by somebody. And then you're just going to have to kind of pick up the pieces afterwards. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure how, how I. I feel about the direction we're going. Actually, sorry, one more question. Sure. Do you think nuclear is the future in terms of like finding um, a way to to balance out non-renewable sources? Um. Well, definitely. I think if if fusion becomes economical, um, as from every, everything I've read, like a, that would be like by far the, the best. <laughs> power source because it doesn't produce nuclear waste in the same way and um, 
and uh, it's obviously it's cheap and um, the fuel is readily available. Um, I, I I personally think that um, and a lot of environmentalists are uh, too negative on nuclear. Um, I mean, the nuclear waste isn't a is isn't a completely trivial issue, but it's much less of a problem than climate change, I think. And um, it just seems crazy to me that that like they're like nuclear power plants being shut down at the same time. You know, environmentalists claim that just like desperately needed to have uh, you know clean clean energy sources. Um, but uh, and I know that there's been efforts to build uh, like smaller, cheaper nuclear power plants. Um, I'm not I've not looked into that enough to know like how seriously to take that, but. So it seems quite possible to me that um, nuclear will become a significantly larger, will or should be a significantly larger portion of um, of the uh, electric power around the world. Um, but I've not looked into it enough to like um, know if that's like likely or, or actually a good idea. Mm, that's fair enough. I mean, I saw recently Finland have have built this absolutely fucking monstrous like cave network. So it's basically mm. like, imagine Gringotts, right? Mm -hmm. in, in Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. So they have just loads and loads of tunnel. And in each tunnel, tunnel, there's a vault. And in each vault, there's like sections where they're going to like concrete cast, like the depleted uranium rods and then put them mm -hmm. in their individual things and then like lock that and then like, like seal up each individual, like lock, like vault as it, as it goes along. And, um, it's being hailed at least as like people having cracked nuclear storage. It's like, just put it deep underground in little individual mm -hmm. sections. Like if it works, fair enough. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Tim, I want to really thank you for your time. Um, do you want to tell people where they can find you and your stuff and, and sort of, yeah, give yourself a plug. Yes, I would, I would love to. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, I just launched full stack economics, um, a couple of weeks ago and it is a um, newsletter that focuses on um, the economy, technology, policy. Um, it is at fullstackeconomics.com, um, and it's free right now, and, and most of the articles will be, will be free in the future. So, um, yeah, you can, you can get that for free. Um, and then I'm on Twitter. I'm at BinaryBits. Lovely. Well, I will put links for both those in the description below. But, um, yeah, thanks very much. All right. Thank you so much. It was Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening.